Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hello everyone, welcome to Coffee Is That Me podcast. I'm your host Valerian Hrala. I hope your autumn is as beautiful as mine. Here in California we have beautiful colors and amazing coffees. You know, as the weather gets colder, you enjoy the coffee more, right? Thank you so much for all your iTunes reviews. Uh, I also got my first from Canada. Thank you Tall Mask Coffee to be the first Canadian reviewer. I still have a little over a month to get to my goal of 50 iTunes reviews by end of this year and reward myself with espresso equipment and reward one of you with a six month subscription to coffeecourses.com, three coffees from my European business green plantation and one mystery coffee which might or might not be the launch coffee for my business in 2016. So. If you did not review yet and you think that I do deserve the espresso equipment or you are in it for the big win, it's time to do so right now. Now, just go iTunes, coffees.me podcast and start the review process unless you are driving or doing some other activity which requires your full attention like coffee roasting for example. In that case you can do it later but do not forget. Thank you so much for feeding my obsession with iTunes reviews. <laughs> In the next three episodes, my guest will be Mike Perry from Clatch Coffee, who will share his over 20 years of experience in the coffee industry. Mike and his wife Cindy started Clatch in 1993 and they were awarded with a multiple national, which by that I mean United States, and international prestigious coffee awards. In the first episode, Mike will talk about his coffee story and how bad coffee at the workplace and a bad cafes available for a date nights can trigger an idea to start your own coffee venture. Unlike some of us, Clatch started with a cafe rather than roasting, and through the interview it will become pretty obvious that for a successful roastery a cafe can be an amazing catalyzator. Mike will also tell us one of those cool stories, how did I find my coffee roaster, which can happen only once in 10 years. I have few of my own, but I already told them in the previous episodes, so if you did not hear them and you want to hear them, go ahead and listen to one of the previous episodes. Mike found a 24 kilogram Diedrich roaster, which also initiated a debate about the ideal size of a roaster for a startup. Mike also reveals what is the minimum load on his 24 kilo roaster and you will be surprised. Mike will also tell us if a roaster in a cafe is a good idea or not, which were the milestones which took Clatch Coffee from few hundred pounds in 1997 to 200 pounds, that is pounds today. There's so much more in this and upcoming episode, and if you are running or thinking to start a coffee business, these episodes are a must for you. What am I talking about? The whole Coffee.me podcast is must for you, right? <laughs> Before we start, a little ad. This episode is brought to you by CoffeeCourses.com, the online education hub for coffee professionals. Do you think to become a roaster, barista, cupper or start a roasting business? CoffeeCourses.com is the right place for you. 
check out our free courses like the Rose Profile Slide, where a villain boot evaluates the rose stars of six well-known coffee brands from the San Francisco Bay Area. I hope to see you at coffeecourses.com soon. Whew, I think I should hire somebody professional to do this. Hi, Mike. Welcome to coffees.me podcast. Thank you. Uh, before we started, you said that you need 10 more minutes to prepare some coffee. So what, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a Kenya Karatu. I'm uh, kind of Kenya is my morning go-to cup of coffee. Uh, like a lot of roasters, we have lots of different coffees, but I'm really a fan of African coffees, in particular the Kenyas. And uh, the Karatu is our, our current uh, offering. Uh, it's actually one that was a Good Foods uh, Award finalist, so it's a good coffee, and I'm, I love it. Mm, nice. Uh, how did you prepare it? Uh, I did a pour-over. Uh, cool. You know, simple so, bee house, just kind of pour it through. Nice. So I did the same. Uh, I also took my 10 minutes, and I made a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you drinking? I'm, I'm drinking, um, you know, I'm drinking Brazil. Uh, oh. And, you know, I know Brazils are not that big in the specialty world, but I think that, you know, there are some gems there. And uh, I have this guy not f- living not far away from me. He's a tech guy, and his dad has a farm in Brazil. And he asked me to help, you know, to give him some ideas how to uh, fix the coffee they do because they did commercial grade, but they want to upgrade to specialty grade. So uh, he brought a lot of samples, and we're playing with them, screening them. It's just fun. So I prepared myself a peaberry. Yeah, I mean, Brazil, obviously, produce 40%. I say Brazil produces 40% of the world's coffee, so obviously there's many gems down there. Yeah, and the, the thing is that what I learned, that people don't, like the, the Brazilian farmers don't know yet the specialty world. They don't use the techniques, you know, what you know, other farmers use. So there's a lot of work there and a lot of potential. Definitely. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so do you remember when we first met? Actually, it was an email. Uh, gosh, we've, we've done a few emails back and forth. I think uh, I saw some work you were doing with Willem Boot, and I was really impressed by it. Well, thanks. Uh, it's actually not right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would not answer this right because okay. <laughs> I was your customer. Oh. I still I am. I am still, by the way. Uh, so I remember very clearly that I bought some green beans from you because I roast at home, and you sell green beans too. And you sent me some coffees, and they're all good except one, and I really did not like it. So I wrote you an email that I really don't like that lot, and everything else was amazing. Just that lot is just not good. I don't like it. And you very promptly answered that, you know, oh, okay, you are very sorry. You don't know why I don't like it because you – you know, you actually do, but you are very happy to exchange it. And I was like shocked, like, whoa, that's amazing customer service. Like without any doubt, you just exchange it. Not only that, not only that, but the email came from Mike Perry. An unknown guy got an email from Mike Perry saying that I'll exchange your coffee. That makes a forever customer. Well, I'm glad that worked. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, you know, Coffee should be enjoyed and be fun. And if something's not right, let's work together to make it that way. But not everybody does that, you know. So I, I have a big respect for that. And I, I had to mention it as a beginning because well, thank uh, you. I have a big respect for Clatch. And I'm very happy that you do this interview. Great. Cool. Okay. So, Mike, what is your coffee story? 
When did you drink your first coffee? And when did you decide that this is going to be your profession? Well, I'll start with my, my first coffee, and it's a little bit embarrassing. Uh, out of high school, I was in construction. I was working in steel fabrication, and, uh, and I was kind of young. And we would have the, what we would call the roach coach, but the, uh, the food trucks come by and get a cup of coffee from them, and it was just miserable. Oh. So, and it kind of desire to try to get better coffee, uh, and here's the embarrassing part, is me and a few friends, we would buy the International Instant Coffees. And you've probably never seen them, but they're like uh, almost like a flavored instant kind of thing. And they would have different flavors and uh, kind of trying them just to have something better than we could get off the food truck. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, drank that and, you know, just always that earliness that you to try to find something better. Uh, then uh, once I got married, uh, my wife and I, uh, we had a couple young kids. And we were starting to go to these coffee houses that were beginning to, to pop up. Uh, down in Orange County, they had one called Rafael. They were actually, I think, up in, in San Francisco as well, uh, probably before you were here. But they were just roasting and selling beans. You couldn't even get full bar drinks. But then there were many others uh, that we would visit and go to. And just that, that was our date night going out as kind of a, a young couple because we couldn't afford uh, fancy things and uh, we really didn't. Uh, at that time, you know, we, we never went out to bars or things like that because we had young kids at home. So our, our kind of once-a-week date night started to become going to these coffee houses that were beginning to pop up. And this is before Starbucks. This would be 91, 92, mm -hmm. uh, doing that. And at that time, I had kind of, uh, on my own side, got to where I owned my own steel construction company and had the opportunity to sell it and did. And, and had what I thought was a pile of money. Being young, it didn't take a lot of money to seem like a pile of money. And thought, oh boy, I'm, I'm rich. What do I want to do? And I kind of regretted that when I was 18, I dropped out of college. Because at the time, I was living at the beach. I was making, at that time, and this would be, what, 35 years ago. Uh, I was back then making uh, $15 an hour, which was a lot of money back then. Mm -hmm. And figured, well, I'll take a semester off school, and then I'll come back. Of course, the semester, I never went back. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of regretted that. And I thought, well, I'll be an example to my kids. I'll go back and get my degree. Because I had a non-compete. I couldn't get back into the uh, structural steel that I was in and ironworking. So went back to school, and I was in enjoying that. Uh, I decided to study engineering because that was probably close to construction a little bit. And in choosing a, a field in engineering, I choose chemical engineering, actually biochemical, because it seemed the most challenging and intrigued me quite a bit. But halfway through what I thought was a pile of money, when you're not working, I found out you spend more money. So after about a year and a half, what I thought was a lot of money was almost gone. And uh, had to decide what to do. Was I going to have to drop out of college a second time to support my family? Uh, you know, what were my options? And I didn't want to do that. It was difficult to kind of go part-time because I was going to school full-time. And decided, my wife and I, as I said, we were going to these coffee houses. And we thought, well, why don't we open a coffee house? We love the environment. We think we can do better than many of these others are. Uh, they kind of fell short in the cup, we thought. So we decided to open a coffee house. And we had a lot of fun visiting a lot of other coffee houses, seeing what worked and didn't and what we liked and didn't, kind of made notes. 
and finally opened in the Rancho Cucamonga, our first coffee house in an old winery building. And my wife could work days, I could work nights, and allowed us to kind of me to continue going to school and for us to be with our family and to pay our bills. And that's kind of how I got started in coffee. Cool. So you started with a cafe. You didn't start with the rose, but you started with a cafe. Started with a cafe. Oh, I did and, not know uh, that. Okay. Yeah, we had a cafe first. We kind of alternated working shifts. Uh, a couple years later, I actually graduated, got my degree, which is in biochemical engineering. Mm-hmm. And had several job offers, but, uh, you know, we're kind of the eastern side of L.A., almost Inland Empire, we call it. And I would have had to commute down to LAX or relocate and move to Washington, D.C. was one offer. And, you know, we, we found out during that time period of getting my degree, I started falling in love with coffee. I really enjoyed the, obviously, the, the beverage, but also the whole environment, the ambiance of being with customers, of talking to people about coffee, uh, trying to get better coffee as much as we could. And the funny thing is that even though I wasn't roasting, I was probably the first multi-roaster account in the United States <laughs> because I found it, it seemed at the time some roasters were good at dark roast. Some had this, some had that, but nobody could really put it all together. So I was actually buying from six different roasters. Oh, wow. Little cafe. <laughs> oh, that, that's, a, that's a good information. You know, th- this is only happening now in Europe. I mean, oh. like uh, I, was, I was even surprised that the, the accounts what we have, my European company, they usually sell other brands too. And the, the cafes which sell only one brand, they usually don't sell other brands simply because I call them the slaves because they, you know, they get a free espresso maker and they have to buy you know, the, the coffee what they uh, signed up for. It's like a cell right. phone plan. <laughs> so I don't like those cafes, honestly. But, <laughs> but it's interesting to see that here it actually happened in 1993 with you. Cool. Yes. Uh, and like I said, I mean, today it's it's a little more popular, but back then it was kind of unheard of. So I, I was doing that. Uh, as I said, I kind of graduated and decided, well, why don't I stay in the coffee? So I opened a second cafe. And then while I was after I opened that cafe, because we had, had made enough to be se- semi-successful, at least to be able to open the second to pay for it. And then a friend calls me up, and he's not too far away, and he says, hey, he said, you're in a coffee business, right? I said, well, yeah, why? And he says, well, I bought this coffee house and it has a coffee roaster in it do you know anything about coffee roasting well i don't know if you know any engineers that are friends but one of the downfalls about engineers is we kind of think we can do anything so i said sure i can do it it's got a manual doesn't it (laughs) should be all i need so i went over and met with them we kind of looked at it had this little dietrich machine little 12 kilo and uh we worked out an agreement I became his coffee roaster, and I didn't get paid, so he had free labor to roast his coffee. But for me, being I had my own coffee houses, I actually got free use of his machine to roast for myself. And that's kind of how I began roasting. Uh, It was a Dietrich machine, so I I actually contacted Dietrich, uh, talked to Stephen, and he was nice enough to invite me to, even though I didn't uh, buy the machine from him, to, to come up and, and spend time with him and learn about him and everything that he could teach me that his father had taught him. Uh, there wasn't a lot of books or materials. So what I really did is I, I kind of took what I learned in school in engineering and I took a scientific approach. 
meaning I would start, I would plot every single roast. And the machines at the time, when they built them, they only came with a probe telling you the drum temperature, mm-hmm. kind of like an oven temperature. It was not a bean temperature. So when I talked to Stephen, it's like, well, why can't I move this probe and give me a bean temperature? And I can you know, monitor the bean much like a meat thermometer. So we kind of worked out how I could re-drill it and tap it and relocate it. And we did that and did that on his machine. And then I could actually be able to plot then real profiles, which now, of course, all machines come that way. But at the time, they really didn't. And I, I just really like roasting because, like I said, I was buying from so many different people. Nobody could do it, everything right. They all did something right. And uh, I really felt I could do better. And this gave me the opportunity to test that theory. So that's kind of how I started roasting. So when was this, approximately? This was in Yorba Linda. This would have been 97. Oh, okay. So you already had cafes for four years, and then you started to roast. Correct. Cool. Um, you also mentioned other name, except uh, Diedrich, on your uh, website. It's Alfred Pete. You mentioned it as one of his, one of your mentors. Uh, how, how did he mentor you? Did you know personally Alfred Pete? No, it was really the the ways of him. I uh, I actually went up to Northern California. And uh, there was a guy up there that, that worked for him, uh, that, that trained with him. And uh, he was kind of a little bit teaching roasting, a little roasting type school, one of the only guys I even heard of that could do it. And I, I spent a week with him just kind of learning everything I could from him and kind of teaching me the way he did things. And it, it's a little different than we may, might do stuff today. Obviously, Pete's is known as a little bit deeper, more developed, darker roast. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just, just little things that, that you learn, you can apply from time to time. Uh, aroma roasting, you never hear anything about that. That was a little trick that we sometimes still use on, on certain coffees or decafs where you kind of shut off the air at the end and run it back to the roaster and it, it gives a little more uh, flavor in that to certain coffees and aroma. Uh, you don't so much that you get a smokiness onto the bean, but you can get a little bit better development. So it's just little tricks that I kind of learned and how to do things and uh, it was just kind of fun in my development. Cool. Do you think that Alfred Pitt would buy Stumptown and Intelligentsia today? Uh, well, I think you'd appreciate they use German roasters because <laughs> obviously Stumptown is, you know, synonymous with the Probat, and then with Intelli they've got what they got hot. So, you know, I, I think you would like that. But as far as a roast style, it's obviously quite a bit different. Uh, no, it's it just, you know, it's all over the news. And I think that, you know, Pete's Coffee is now owned by some German company. Am I Correct. right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. By the way, when we come back, uh, you said that you had embarrassing story with your first coffee. So here's my story. I, when I was a high school student, I used to, you know, my mom had her morning coffee. So I took a sugar cube because that's very in, in Europe. That's what we used in 80s right. and 90s, the sugar cubes. And I uh, kind of dipped it slightly in the coffee, so it soaks up the uh, the coffee, and that's that was my coffee for morning for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so here is more embarrassing story about first yes, coffee. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, going back to the uh, the roasting differences of let's say Pete's and a and an Intellier Stumptown, it's kind of funny when you when you look at them because many years ago at one of the early SAA conferences, I was lucky enough to lead a a cupping class with Jim Reynolds, who for a year was the, you know, the main head roaster up there with with Pete's, 
And afterwards, someone asked a question, what makes a good breakfast blend? So he looked at me and I, I answered and I said, well, you know, for me, when I wake up in the morning, I want something kind of to wake me up light and lively to get my taste buds going. Uh, so I want something that has maybe just a, you know, a little bit brighter, maybe a hint of fruit. Uh, and today our, our breakfast blend actually has a Kenyan Columbia blend in it mm -hmm. to kind of get those type of flavors. But then Jim kind of looks over and says, well, when I wake up in the morning, I like a nice French roast. <laughs> so it means our breakfast blend is a French roast. Or at least was at the time. So that's quite a bit different than, let's say, you'd find it in Telly or Stumptown. <laughs> it's true. You know, the dark roast is still in. We, we did not leave it. I think most of the people in the United States still enjoy dark roast. I mean, the specialty grade coffee and all these light roasts are kind of trendy and they're very loud because, we, mm -hmm. you know, they're all over social media. They know how to do it. But I'm experiencing, let's say, here in, in, in uh, north of San Francisco, it's very hard to convince people to go light. I mean, everybody wants a dark roast, and I can explain them that, look, if you go light, you can actually taste the farm. You can taste the work of the farmer. No, we just want the dark stuff. We, we love that. You know, it's like, it, you know, it, there will be always, I guess, uh, there, there always will be different worlds of, you know, roast. Was that more generational, meaning more the older generation, or is that more regional? Because obviously when we think of Scandinavia, we think of a really light roast. Well, that's, you know... That's probably true uh, in Scandinavia, but again, you know, Starbucks just opened, uh, a, they, they just launched the first store in Slovakia. They launched in Hungary not long ago. So, you know, Starbucks is growing in Europe with their dark roast. So I, again, I think there will be different worlds. I mean, when it comes to region, like again, coming back to San Francisco, the, here where I am, a little bit north, Marin, it's, I think it's dark roast world. Then if you go to uh, to San Francisco, it's a mixture. But then if you go to East Bay, like Oakland, Berkeley, I think there's more like the light guys there, I think. Mm. But that's the only impression. I'm doing a research on this. So maybe in a few months, uh, I'll let you know what people love think to, here. Love to learn what you, what you find out. Oh, me too. I, this is so interesting <laughs> because, you know, I meet people here and the only topic I have is coffee. I actually lost all my friends who don't speak coffee. So... <laughs> so so, so, that, so that's a coffee, and I always ask drink, how do you enjoy your coffee? And most of the people actually do drink dark roast, and maybe that's only my friends. So that's why I thought that let's, let's do this research. Let's, let's have fun with this. Hmm. Now, yeah. See, for me, it's a little different because most of my friends, you know, have become customers. And, you know, we might meet at my, one of my coffee houses in the morning. So obviously they've come to appreciate more of my roast style, which is a little bit lighter. Mm -hmm. But uh, definitely we try to find the sweet spot. Yeah, cool. Uh, when you were starting to roast, uh, you mentioned that uh, you took a course or you visited uh, Diedrichs. Uh, did you have any other inspiration, either people, books, or movies, uh, which helped you to learn to roast coffee or helped you grow your business? Uh, well, I think one of the – initially, as I said, I, I got to visit with Stephen at Diedrich and spend time with him. I got to go up to – Northern California and, and learn from the guy that roasted for Pete's. But I also, I, I think one of the early books I actually read, there was very little on roasting. And there was one by Ken Davids on home roasting. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know how old it is now, but it actually said a lot that would really help anyone who wants to get into roasting and learn about roasting. And I learned a lot from that. Uh, I would read it and then I would test it. I would test the theories and uh, see what worked and what didn't. And that helped me out quite a bit. 
Yeah, uh, I, I know that book. I, that was also my first book I had. And he had also <laughs> series like on espresso. And yeah. uh, he had coffee, coffee, home roasting and espresso, I think. Yeah, very good book. Yeah, and the, the way how I learned to roast is also was a Sweet Maria's website. I learned to roast, I learned to roast in 2001 when I returned. I used to work uh, for United Nations. And I returned and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. This is hard, you know, very sad working in a post-war areas. So I was looking for something new. And through, through uh, a fight with my wife, uh, because she's, she's American, I was European, and we worked in Europe. And she told me that uh, American coffee is better than European. I was like, that's no way. So she brought me Starbucks. So I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is th- uh, yeah, in, in 1991, when I was drinking some crappy European mass blend, you know, that, that was amazing coffee. Sorry, in 2001. So then I was like, I want to do this. So I, I, I picked up, you know, the, you know, I went to Google or whatever it was, Yahoo, whatever it was then, and uh, so researched it and Sweet Maria's. That's how I learned to roast. So I learned to roast, and then since then I do coffee. That's still a great resource for people. It is. Uh, it you is. know, it's, it's, it's funny. Sometimes we'll, we'll get a coffee, and, and even though I may have even been to the farm or visited the farm or Sometimes I have a hard time getting all the information from them, and, and, and I will go to Sweet Maria's site and see that and see that Tom's getting that similar coffee or the same coffee, and I can learn more from his site than I can direct from the farmer. <laughs> so he does a great job. Yeah, he's one of um, you know I I don't have any celebrity uh, like fever usually. When I, if if I would meet uh, any actor, I would just talk to them normally. Yeah, like I, I I don't have that. I don't know why, but I don't like. You know, I, I'm not a rock star person, but with Tom. I, I was shaking. He, <laughs> this is a funny story. <laughs> there was a, uh, the Good Food Awards, the latest one. Uh, I was a yeah. volunteer there. I was the, in a cleaning crew. <laughs> so I was helping out the guys there. And he, he was one of the cuppers. And I was standing next to him. I, I was shaking. I was like, I did not. I was afraid to talk to him. I don't know why. I mean, this was the first <laughs> time I had a, like a celebrity uh, fever or something like that. It's well, I'm sure once you did, he's a pretty down-to-earth guy. I'm sure that went fine. I'm, I'm sure he is, and maybe next time I will talk to him. But um, <laughs> at that time, I was like, look at that, look at that, who is there? <laughs> you know, he, he probably doesn't know, but there's so many people who can uh, thank him so much for, you know, starting their own businesses. And with everything what he does, it's just amazing. You know, I have yes. big respect for that guy. Okay, so how did your first roasting operation look like? What kind of coffee did you sell? Uh, what was your first packaging and, you know, everything that comes with that? Well, when we first started, as I said, I actually got to roast at a friend's place, and that and that really got the bug going for roasting for me. So I wanted to get my own roaster, and in looking around, I I found a guy that was selling a twenty four kilo Dietrich roaster, mm. and uh, it had you know it was top of the line with it had the uh, the brass front, you know, the really shiny one design. Ops. a little bit big for a shop, but but very nice. And when I saw it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is way beyond what I was figuring to to get or spend. And the guy was a retired military guy. He uh, bought it new. Uh, so I, I started in 97. This would have been 98. And the machine was a 93, five years old. Looked like brand new. The guy roasted half a day a week on it in his shop. And uh, as I said, ex-military, and just found out that coffee was a lot of work. And it kind of interfered with his semi-retirement. Mm-hmm. So he just wanted to cash out. And uh, he says, well, I told him, gosh, a beautiful machine, but I'm going to have to you know, pass. I just don't have enough 
to be able to get that. And he says, well, you know, what were you looking to spend? And I said, gosh, I, I said, you know, can't spend over 10000 and That's all I have saved. And, and he says, sold. And I got the machine. It was looked like new and the whole, all the ducking. I mean, everything involved with it. Wow. And it's like, wow, what a bargain. So we, we put it in one of our stores and added it in the corner. And our initial roastery was really a retail cafe, roastery cafe. We were roasting in the store. And uh, our packaging, we were actually back then, we had bins because that's going back to what I saw Grafeo doing. They had the bins where they would just scoop it out. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of pick what you want. So we were doing that. Uh, did that for a while. And uh, we would fill up the little, uh, you know, brown craft bags and, and just give it to people, kind of fresh like that. And that worked for a while. But then as we start in, in, in a shop, there's only so much green coffee you can get. And I was at that time only buying from the importers. Uh, and we had a, a few in Southern California that I was uh, familiar with and was getting beans from. But as I said, when I got in coffee, I, I went from a multi-roaster to get my, doing it myself to try to get better. And then I found that I, I wanted to continue to get better. And I was kind of limiting with just, you know, an importer. So I started learning about more importers and working with them. And then I finally got the chance to go to Origin. And, and meet farmers and try to go direct. And that really opened, opened up a whole other world for me. But the problem was it was just too much to be able to do in one store. We had started growing. We found out that the, the scooping would take time. People didn't want to wait in, wait in lines. So at some point, we made the decision to prepack our coffee. So we were using the pouches with the Ziploc on top, mm-hmm. you know, the pretty good-sized pouch. And... The day, the day we switched from scooping to order to pre-weighed out in the sealed bags with the valves and, and having them on the shelf, we found our bean sales doubled. Because wow. now the people, when they were waiting in line, because you'd have a line back, well, we would have them go right by where the, the beans were all stacked as they waited in line, and they'd look at them and read about it, and many of them would start grabbing the bag. Well, when they had to order and wait, many people are in a hurry in a coffee house, especially Southern California. You know, it's a fast pay. So people are always in a hurry. But in doing that for our market, it actually doubled our bean sales. So that helped a lot. But, of course, as the roasting increased, it was just too much for a store. Uh, we had bags everywhere. Uh, as much as the romance of roasting in a store adds freshness, and it helps you at some point initially when, you, when you're doing it, it starts to become a bit of a detriment. Uh, people would say, gosh, that thing's noisy. Or, are you going to shut that down? Oh. <laughs> uh, and, of course, the dust, a little bit of crates, you're always cleaning. You're always doing stuff. It's noisy. You're trying to weigh. There's so many things you're, you're trying to do. You're kind of getting away. We'd have to take seating away to be able to do our packaging. Uh, we're roasting more and more. A little bit of smoke sometimes on a darker roast. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, we finally had to make that decision to move out to a warehouse. And once again, once we did that, uh, while some people would say, oh, we missed the roaster. Of course, they were the same people that would complain about when we were going to shut it down for the noise. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, while some would miss it, it actually increased our seating and increased our revenue and sales in our store. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, That's that's one thing which uh, we were thinking to probably buy some very cheap roasters. Just put them in our cafes. Once we're going to have, we don't have cafes yet. But just to have them there, you know, for display. Because because uh-huh. people 
somehow associate that, oh, if you are a roaster, you have to have a cafe with a roaster inside, you know. Maybe we just ask the guys to build us a, the shell. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Just... Well, I think for demonstration or education or small things, it, it can be a benefit. But to start try to do your production in there, that just didn't work. Uh, there's a few hybrid examples where people now will have the roasting and the, and the retail together, but they'll have a glass wall between them. Mm-hmm. So it kind of separates. So it's kind of like looking at the chef in the back through the glass and being able to do that. And I think that's a nice uh, way to combine the two together. Okay. Uh, I've seen bakeries like that. Yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. So when it comes to your uh, new roaster, well, at that time, new roaster, you said it was 24 kilo, right? Correct. So did you manage to sell all the 24 kilos of roasts? Or did you have issues with that? I mean, asking this because I have a lot of people who are asking me, you know, uh, because we do the online education, so they ask me that, what kind of roaster should I buy? I'm thinking to buy this one kilo roaster. I usually tell them that one kilo roaster is a good home roaster, but otherwise it will kill you business-wise. You should Correct. get a bigger one. But they go, oh, but, you know, and then I cannot, uh, like, uh, I cannot make sure that the coffee is going to be fresh. So how did you do it with a 24 kilo roaster? Well, even though it's a 24 kilo we, we basically always wanted fresh. So we became the masters of roasting minimum batch sizes. In other words, mm-hmm. we could roast five pounds and get a great tasting roast. On a 24 kilo roaster? On a 24 kilo. Nice. Yep. Nice. So we, we learned that way. And obviously, I mean, that, that's what we would do. Our, our geishas, we would do small batches. And uh, it, it worked good enough that that was the, the only roaster we had when we became roaster of the year. So... We were doing something right on it, and they were a lot, oftentimes because we roast to order smaller batches. Do you have any experience if you can do it on other roasters, or is it something typical for Diedrich? I think it might vary slightly with the machine. There might be times that you don't have enough beans in there to really be able to see or to, to know the temperature, the bean temperature, depending on how it's located. Mm-hmm. But if you can study the bean, just like with our sample, our ProBat sample roasters today, we don't have a bean pro, we just have a a temperature probe inside the drum so you learn to study the bean mm-hmm. and if you can do that i think you can do it on almost any machine yeah i think so i always tell to these people that you can roast on a 15 kilo roaster you can roast five kilos or four kilos but you cannot roast on a five kilo roaster 15 kilos and right if you, if you are in growth you know that's you know that's a worth thing when you have when you outgrow your roaster and you have to upgrade so, you know, you have to invest in a new roaster while you still have the old one. Potentially, you sell the old one most of the times. So, it just, your money is kind of wasted there, you know. And, of course, you lose some money on the, on the roaster because, especially if you bought it new, uh, they're moving. So, I always recommend people to get, to have bigger eyes. And also, and if I'm you do the business. Same way. Sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> I'm the same way. I know people ask me, oh, I want to get a, you know, one or three kilos you mentioned. And there's no way. They can do nothing but make a minimum wage for themselves if they're doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really need to get at least a 12 to 15 kilo. If, if they cannot sell that much coffee, they should not do business. Yeah, that's my Correct. advice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another reason it's really nice to have a cafe for yourself, even if you're not roasting in it, because now you've got a built-in customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's our biggest mistake we did in Europe, and we still don't have coffee, and we're working on it. But I wanted to ask you this question. So how does a cafe help a roastery? How would, for example, your business look like if you would not have those cafes? Well, it'd be very challenging. It'd be very tough. 
to me, having a cafe works in several benefits. The first is because we roast to order, let's just say I, I get someone orders a minimal amount of coffee, uh, an online order, a couple 12-ounce bags, and I don't have any other orders for it. Well, because I roast to order, I can roast still a small batch, not that small, but I can roast a small one, and the extra coffee I can put in my cafe where we can sell it fresh there instead of sitting on a shelf in a warehouse waiting for more orders. So it helps me that way. But that's a, a minor way. The real benefit of, of having a cafe is it gives us an opportunity to prove our theories on what works and what's successful. Mm. Because obviously as a roaster, we're selling to other cafes. You know, that's our, our ideal successful coffee house. So they might think, well, what do you know about my business? You might be a roaster, but what do you know about mine? How are you going to help me? And that's where we can say, well, at our own coffee houses, you know, we're showing like this year, for example, 20% growth over last year. We've had double-digit growth the last uh, five years in a row, even when times were tough back then. And we do it because of the uh, techniques that we use. And we can teach them those same techniques. We can teach them how to do things. It obviously starts with great baristas. How can you have a great barista if you don't have a cafe? How can you learn to be a great barista without a cafe? So we use that to fine-tune our own skills to see what works and then share those with those we work with. So to me, having a cafe as a roaster, at least one, uh, it's a proof of theory. It's a proof of what works. I love that. This is this is great. Yeah, that's I'm your customer right now. <laughs> no, it's you test you test stuff on yourself, you know, and yes. then the best of that you kind of give to your customers, uh, and they they trust you. It's not like one guy you come and you just say that you know I, I I know how to do this. You actually can prove that you know you can do this, but that might uh, that brings me to another question: is like, aren't they suspicious of you because you are a businessman, right? You you have your cafes. Are they suspicious that you're going to teach them something wicked? You know, they can bankrupt. I don't know. It's just kind of silly. But I, I don't think so at all because I'm trying to sell them beans. And if they go bankrupt, I lose a customer. So there's no benefit there. I want to see them grow. I mm-hmm. want to help them grow because then they're going to buy more beans from me. They're going mm-hmm. to open more stores. So it's really just the opposite. I, I think it, it proves that I have a vested interest in their success. Now, if if I were to grow so many stores, I become like a, a Starbucks or somebody. Well, now I'm a competitor. That's mm-hmm. a little bit different. Having a few stores is just enough to really prove it and to test and to hone our own skills that we can share with them. I think there's a point where if you get too many, now you got to be careful. Yeah, you're getting yeah, you're right. Uh, so speaking of um, of of the growth, do you remember how did your sales evolve? How did your first year look like? You know. Um, and and how was your production growing? Well, production was growing only after you started your roastery. But you know, how how does this look like? When when can a newbie expect to turn profits? For example, well, yeah, it's funny. I, I'm asked that. People say, well, you know, you lose money the first year or two years, or how that works. Well, when I started out, I I put the rest of my savings to open our first cafe. So obviously, I kind of was raised old school where. We paid our bills first, and we could only spend what we made, and I was the last one paid. So if, we, if our family needed to pay our house payment and our electricity bills and be able to eat, we had to make money. Now, it meant we worked a lot of hours. I mean, we would work, my wife and I eat sometimes 60, 70 hours uh, to be successful, but we were profitable from month one. 
and we had to be. We had to be successful. We just had to work harder to get there. Uh, once we started roasting, we initially only wanted to roast for ourselves. We had no plans of of doing wholesale or selling to others. But people would see roasting and they'd come in and say, hey, you know, I I have a, a cafe. I come in and see your stuff. I like the stuff you get better than I can buy. Can I buy from you? Uh, I have a restaurant. I'd, I'd love to feature your coffee in there. And people would come to us. So it kind of opened our eyes to the possibility of wholesale. And that's how we started in the wholesale. So having that visibility initially with the roaster in there helped to spurn the wholesale business. But there were obviously many other things that really kind of helped launch us. Mm -hmm. uh, when we decided to, to go online, one thing that really helped us early on is I remember Ken Davids with Coffee Review did a review of espressos. So we submitted uh, our Bell Espresso. And it won and got a 94. So instantly, we had people ordering online from us. It kind of made us known. So that really helped us out uh, having kind of an honor and award. Uh, once the, we were talking about having a cafe and having baristas, uh, in our company, Heather, who's my oldest daughter, she grew up around the coffee. And as a kid, she was always wanting to get behind the counter. I think when we opened the business, she was uh, 10 years old. But she always wanted to get behind the counter and make a drink. You know, kids want to kind of mm -hmm. sometimes follow their parents and do things. And so she was always the barista side, always wanting to do that. And the first year they had a barista competition, she she kind of entered. And even though uh, she's kind of famous as the the cowgirl with the cow hat, and she pulled out a six gun shooter and she lit it, and it was a a, a flame at the end like a lighter, and she burned a a marshmallow to make a a s'mores mocha. <laughs> <laughs> scared the judges because they didn't know to blow it out but, uh, so more infamous than famous but uh you know it kind of you know we learned from that and the following year she won the u.s championship mm -hmm. and that helped us become a little bit more known uh so that was a, a big thing for us uh when she won the second time at the world championships our espresso was awarded best espresso in the world at the world championships that really launched us to a new level uh and then a couple years later, we actually got Roaster of the Year in the U.S. And that gave us a lot more national recognition. It really helped spawn the wholesale that much even more. So those are a few benchmarks that really helped out. I mean, obviously, there's some others. Even more recently, I mean, last year we had the number one coffee of the year at Coffee Review with a 97-point geisha. This we've had a couple 96s and the good foods and, and our espresso getting the uh, Golden Bean Award. Uh, for the best espresso, uh, those things still test us and, and, and force us to really spend time on our product and to do good. And, and each of those really give us more recognition to more customers, and they help continue to grow our business. Uh, probably more recently, the biggest growth thing was the new roastery we built. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier how we roasted in a cafe. We outgrew that and went to a small warehouse, and we're roasting in there. Uh, we were in that warehouse with that same 24 kilo roaster. We were roasting six and seven days a week, 16 hours a day to keep up, and we couldn't put another roaster in there. There was no room. Uh, we were getting deliveries three, four times a week of green beans because that's all the storage we had to keep turning things. So we finally had started to get successful enough to buy a much bigger building. Uh, now we have an 8,400 square foot building, but in it we have three training labs. Oh, wow. Uh, that really work out. One's almost like a, a, 
a mock-up cafe type thing. The other one's all espresso machines for espresso training. Uh, and then upstairs we have for our roaster training where we have the sample roaster and a small roaster and all the different things involved. And each of them we have the, you know, the TV where we can do PowerPoints and videos and teach things. But it really allows us to support better all of our wholesale accounts. So now they can come in and get training. And we do training events here three, four times a week, uh, many of them private, of course, with either our own accounts or, or training. But, but some of them are public events where we invite the public in on our Friday cuppings and things like that. So this has really helped us now get to that next level. That's my dream place, by the way. I'm totally <laughs> like, if, if, if I will be close to you, I'm totally putting in my resume right now. <laughs> That's, seriously, I, you know, I, when I came here, I was uh, thinking to start a roastery, you know, they had a lot of different ideas, but obviously there's a, a lot of great competition here. So I was like, you know, you don't bring wood to the forest. So when I found the work with Willem Booth and, you know, doing the, the research and doing the education, it's just so much fun. You meet so many people who are passionate about coffee the same way as you are. So I'll, I'll, that, that will be my dream job, seriously. So maybe one day. <laughs> and those are some of the same reasons I, I stayed in, in coffee instead of pursuing the engineering. It's just so much fun, as you say. It's such a passion. Let's talk numbers. Okay. Uh, when it comes to your size of your production, uh, how did it grow? So what's today and what was, let's say, uh, in 97 when you started roasting? Yeah. When we started, obviously, we were roasting just for our own cafe. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, we're buying bags at a time. Uh, we're doing small quantities, you know, basic, Colombia, Sumatra, uh, <clears throat> Brazil. Not the micro lots because, uh, you know, one, we didn't know about them. Two, they, re- they really weren't that prevalent in the market at that time. Uh, today we've got uh, two roasters now in our production and, uh, now we're doing about 400,000 pounds, uh, and, and growing rather quickly still, uh, like I said, our wholesale is at 20% and growing. Uh, so that's really kind of help, helping us quite a bit, letting us still test and learn, uh, because we source direct, we're able to get better micro lots, more micro lots, more direct, get our first choice in many things. That's really helped us out a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's, and that's really where the fun is too. You know, to me, I, I don't know about you, I mean, as much as roasting is fun, I love cupping. Uh, and any day I can cup is just a great day, and I cup almost every day. So, uh, you know, finding new coffees, learning how to just nail the roast on a new bean that mm-hmm. you bring in. Oh, that's so much fun. Yeah, cupping is like opening Christmas presents every day. <laughs> yes, yes, I love it. <laughs> In fact, you know, people always tell me, oh, I want to be a better roaster, you know. I want to learn how to roast. And I say, well, if you want to be a better roaster, be a better cupper. You learn to roast at the cupping table because that's where you, you get to test the theory of what you just roasted. Yeah, and before you become a, before you start to cup, start to, not swallow food, but start to taste food. That's such a big difference. I did not realize that people don't taste things when they eat. They just put in their mouth and swallow. You know? I guess they don't realize coffee is a culinary art. You but know? but just it's like everything. You know? I mean, yeah, just like everything. I mean, guys, that's why I go to wine tastings and mm-hmm. tequila tastings and, and, and different food events, just to really explore my palate. It's fun. You know, what was for me the biggest revelation working with Willem Booth? When he said that, when, we're, when he was teaching cupping, 
and he was teaching breathing exercises. A lot of people go like, oh, this is such a hoo-ha, you know, it just, you know, we, some people know he does yoga, so it's like, uh, you know, breathing exercises. <laughs> but you know what? The taste, like 80% of the taste is in your nose. All the aromatics go through that. So if you swallow anything, like if you, sorry, if you put in your mouth anything from salami to wine, anything, and you breathe out through your nose, that's when you pick up all the aromas and taste. And people don't do that. People just, you know, swallow things. And when I teach it to people, when I show it to people, like regular people, like, you know, you, we are eating uh, ice cream, I say, well, breathe out through your nose and go like, oh, that tastes so much better. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it does. Everything does. So, yeah, that, that was for me a revelation, such a small thing. And I was like, oh, okay, I actually, you know, I, I, I see the taste. I finally taste the taste, you know. Mm, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. You said all these awards, which is amazing. I mean, congrats, by the way, on those. I mean, well-deserved. But I want you to tell me some tips. How can a small company, which does not have yet uh, a skill set or do not have the chance to get those awards, what can skyrocket them? You know, what was, were there any moments in your business which were like, wow, this really helped to push our sales to the next level? Well, I think it really... I think it really goes with the, the process. You have to have a process. You can't just get beans in and roast them all the same. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really a strong believer that every different bean has a different profile, a different uh, point where that flavor just shines. Just like with different, going back to food, different meats, cooking them different ways to get different flavors out of them. Uh, so for me, even today, we go through a series with every bean we bring in, and it starts with experimentation. We experiment by roasting it at different levels in the sample roaster, different times, different degrees of, of uh, roast, different weight losses, uh, tasting each one. But when we roast it, we don't just roast it different ways. We document exactly what we did. So first is the experimentation. Next is the documentation, and we follow it up with the cupping. And it's through that cupping that you learn what tastes best. And when you know what tastes best, you go back to your documentation to see which one it is and what you did. And now that you know that, now you can do the final step, which is duplication. And that gives you a consistent product. And whether you, you know, enter and, and get an award or not, you're going to have better coffee that way. That's also going to help you find better coffee. So in other words, we're, if we're looking for you were mentioning Brazil. Uh, if I wasn't able to travel down and find direct, I could get tons of samples of Brazils and I would sample roast every single one to find out where's the best coffee or the coffee that I think is the best. It has the sweetness that I look for. You know, as you know, obviously tasting Brazils, as you mentioned earlier, there's many different kinds. And to me, they kind of fall into the better Brazils. There's two categories. There's the ones that have the, the citrus with the chocolate. And then there's the ones that have the, the more of the red fruit. I personally love that orange with the chocolate. Mm-hmm. So I look for those type of flavors. The others are good. It's just different. I can get that fruit flavor through an Ethiopian natural, let's say. But, uh, you know, that's what I look for. So I'm looking for the best one that has that type of taste profile that I can find. It's sweet. It's clean. It's chocolate. It has that orange citrus that has balance of the acidity and still has a nice body and mouthfeel. Uh, and when I find it, that's what I want to bring in. That's what I want to get. So I'll taste many, many coffees to get there. So, I mean, first, it's, it starts by coming up with a process that you can go through. You have to experiment. You have to document. And then you have to taste. Good. 
that sounds like uh, feasible <laughs> and fun. <laughs> fun and doable. I mean, it's Love something you. anybody can do. Yeah. So back, going back to your cafes, uh, one thing which surprised me, you have multiple locations, including Canada and Korea. <laughs> they have also a very different vibe. Uh, why did you decide to go to Canada and Korea and not, for example, Europe? Uh, it's a little bit of opportunity. I really think Asia is a, a booming, growing market. Let's face it, you've been drinking in, in Europe coffee forever, but the, the Asian market is really exploding. And, you know, we had some, some people that we had worked with there through some of the products we're getting. And it's a little bit of opportunity. And looking at the opportunity, we just felt that it was really good for us. It would help expand our brand. Uh, and we decided to go for it. Okay, so, I mean, I thought that you got some special because you have a cafe at uh, LA Airport. Is that correct? That is correct. So I thought that you got special discounts for flying out there or something, and you were like, "Oh, yeah. I just fly here," and I. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't, but I like the way you think. So I'm going to bring that up. <laughs> you, you should. I would love to get discounts. <laughs> you, yeah, you should. I mean, come on, it's like you should have some perks of having the uh, amazing cafe at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess the only real perk is now I can get a great cup of coffee when I go there. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this podcast with Mike Perry. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. For sure, it made my brain to spin. Mike will stay with us for the next episode too. And in the next episode, we are going to talk more about espresso equipment, what kind of espresso machine to choose and we're going to talk about the espresso blends. Clutch Coffee is very famous for the espresso blends so I picked Mike's brain about how to make the best espresso blend. We want to know, right? We want to make a better blend than a Clutch Coffee does. Perhaps. We hope so. <laughs> we're also going to talk about coffee business in Asia because Asia is a booming market for coffee. I hope in a future episodes I can have somebody in Asia and tell us how does the business work there? I would love to interview somebody from China. So if you are in China and you are in a coffee business there, let us know. If you are in Korea or Japan, let us know. We know you like coffee. We just don't know too much about your markets. I also tortured Mike with my traditional $10,000 question. You know, what kind of coffee business would you start with $10,000? I know my guests don't like this question too much, but I also want them to think. I want them to uh, motivate us with some ideas on a low budget. So why not, right? I hope to see you next time. And if you are in the United States, I wish you happy Thanksgiving and enjoy your turkeys. <laughs> see you next time. Bye.